Lord is here with us this morning. He's got big plans in store for somebody, all of us. Just be sensitive to what he's saying to you specifically. If you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 3. For the last five weeks, we've been looking at the bad news that Paul has begun his letter to the Romans with, and he's told us what the root problem with humanity is, explaining who all is guilty before God and why. He started off with the obvious ones, those who commit all sorts of wicked sins. Then he starts naming those that aren't so obvious. He takes aims at those who might assume that they're good with God for whatever reason, whether it be the race that they were born into, their religion, the knowledge that they had, or their good behavior, and he assures them all that they are just as doomed. Today we finally get to pivot from the bad news to the good news. But before Paul does that, he's going to spend the first half of chapter 3 kind of summing up and tying up any loose ends of everything that he's said so far. We're going to look at chapter 3 in different sections, much like we did the end of chapter 2 last week. The first section we'll look at are the first four verses of the chapter. And in these verses here, Paul is further explaining something that he said at the end of chapter 2. So let's look at this. If you would stand with me as we receive the word of the Lord this morning. Romans 3, starting in verse 1. Then what, had, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Let's pray. God, Lord, we just declare that you are good, you are holy, and Lord, we are in desperate need of you. Holy Spirit, I pray that through your word this morning, God, you would open our eyes to see Jesus. Lord, draw us to you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So last week we looked at an absolute bombshell that Paul dropped at the end of chapter 2. He was pulling the rug right out from under those who thought they were good with God just because they were born a certain way. For many of the Jews who thought they were good just because they were, quote, God's chosen people. And in verse 28 and 29, he said, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly bearing the physical marks of those who belong to God, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, who has had his heart changed. Last week, I talked about how this was an absolutely huge statement. I mean, this changes everything. Which, by the way, is exactly what Jesus did. He changed everything. And I mentioned a couple weeks ago how the church in Rome here was made up primarily of Christian uh, Jews. 
And although they were Christian, they still held on to some of the Old Covenant, Old Testament beliefs and perspectives. They haven't yet understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of their Jewish history and customs and rituals and law. They still believe that being a Jew gave them a special place with God that nobody else had. And I can just imagine the people gathered together here in this small church listening to this letter being read because someone would have been reading it out loud to them. And I imagine them listening intently, probably with their brow wrinkled a bit and their head tilted to the side because of some of the things that Paul has already said, like the fact that the law is not what makes us right with God. And when the reader got to verse 28 and 29 of chapter 2, I can imagine that there probably was a, a pretty vocal reaction to that. They probably would have been like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Read that last part again. And he would have read it. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. I mean, this is, this is the stuff that would eventually get Paul killed. Because it was not the pagans who worshipped false gods and had all these other weird religions that were so against Paul. It was the Jews, the religious Jews who were calling for his head, which eventually led to him being beheaded in Rome. I mean, go back and starting in about verse or chapter 21 of Acts, read the rest of the book there, and you'll see that's exactly what happened. It was the Jews who were so incensed because of things like this that Paul kept saying. I mean, everything that Paul has said about being a Jew so far in this letter would have brought up some big questions. And Paul even anticipates the questions that would arise because he just asked them in the verses that we read and then he answers them. And the first question is, well, then what advantage is there of being a Jew? Is there no benefit to that at all then? And Paul says, you bet there is a benefit. First of all, the advantage is that the Jews were entrusted with the very oracles of God. What an incredible privilege that is. To be the people that God chose to tell his story through. To be uh, the, uh, the ones who were given the law. What a privilege to have the very thing that shows us that we need a savior. I mean, this explains a phrase that Paul used three times earlier in the letter. In verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then in verse 10 of chapter 2, he said, There will be glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I mean, they had the privilege of being the first ones who were given the chance of being the recipients of God's ultimate solution to mankind's problems. The, given the first chance to, to truly be made right with God. But being the ones who were entrusted with the oracles of God, this was pretty much a double-edged sword. Because they were the ones chosen to be entrusted with that, the ones through whom the Savior would come, the first ones to have their need exposed by the law, the first ones to have been given the opportunity to be made right, they would also be the first ones judged for not accepting it. In verse 9 of chapter 2, Paul said, There will be tribulation and distress 
For every soul of man who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul is essentially saying this. First point if you're following along in your notes there. With great privilege comes great responsibility. And we can apply this to our own lives and the privilege that we have been given in Christ today. Like you've heard me say many times before, God did not save you for you and your purposes. He saved you for his. If you have been given the privilege of being saved from your sin and indwelt with the Holy Spirit and entrusted with the gospel, you now have the the privilege and the responsibility of doing something with that. I mean, when God reveals Jesus to us, we first believe And then through that belief, we are made a part of his body, his family that we belong to. And then what do we do? We build. We do something with the privilege that we have been given. And then next, Paul states another question that he knows they'll be asking. If some did not believe, their unbelief is not going to nullify the promises of God with it, the faithfulness of God Here's what they're asking. They're thinking, what about all the promises that God made to us as a people? I mean, the Old Testament is full of blessings and promises that God gave to Israel. And most of those, the people here, they were still looking to be the recipients of just by the fact that they were Jewish. Let's look at some of them. I mean, you've got probably one of the most famous ones that was given to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. After Abraham, you had other blessings and promises. There was the blessings of the fathers passed down to the sons. And in the book of Numbers, the blessing of Aaron that many of you are familiar with, where, God, where, where Aaron says, may the Lord bless you and keep you and, and cause his face to shine upon you. And then you've got all the promises that were given through the prophets, how the nation would be restored and the compassion of God being shown and the blessings that would come from their salvation. And so they all assumed, as do many today, that those promises were specifically for just the nation of Israel. And so everyone born a Jew were going to be the ones who would be the recipients of those blessings and promises. But then Paul says here that you're not a Jew if you think you are on the outside. It's what happens on the inside that makes you a Jew. And so the question that Paul raises here, what it is asking is that if someone is born a Jew, but they don't believe, and so they don't make the cut like you're talking about, then they don't get the promises that were made to them as a Jew. If they don't get the promises that were made to them as a Jew, doesn't that mean then that God is unfaithful to his promises? And here's what Paul is wanting them to understand, and it's what a lot of folks still need to understand today. You can track all through the Old Testament the promises and the blessings of God. And what you will find in those is great promise of God's future activity in the lives of his people that culminate in Jesus Christ. 
the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise of Moses, all the way through the prophets are fulfilled in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And so everyone who puts their faith in him, they now, we now, become the recipients of those promises and blessings. So the next point, the promise and blessings in the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus Those who are in him become the recipients of those promises and blessings. They weren't limited solely to the nation of Israel, but to all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is who Israel in the Old Testament foreshadowed and was pointing to. This is who they were representing in God's overall telling of his one big story. And if you still find that kind of hard to believe, listen to what Paul says in Galatians three thirteen and 14. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. RJ, you have that one up on screen. Now look at this. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He says, in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham that we just read will come to us through faith. Not through birth, not through religion, not through race, not through our obedience to the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That blessing of Abraham we just read that I'm going to bless those who bless you and, and curse those who curse you. That's for you if you believe in Jesus. That's your blessing and your promise. You are included in that is what Paul is saying here. And so the question is, if there will be Jews who don't receive those blessings, then doesn't that make God not faithful to his promises? And here's how Paul answers that in verse 4. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. I believe what he's saying is that if there are Jews who don't receive those promises, it's not God's fault. It's theirs. God is always true to his promises, but the promises he made were not limited to what you all are assuming they were limited to. The Jews have the first opportunity to be the recipients of them, but ultimately they are for everyone who put their faith in Jesus. If a Jew doesn't receive those promises, that's not on God, that is on them. Whether or not someone receives the promises and the blessings is not based on who they are on the outside or what they have been born into. It's based on what God has done through Christ to them on the inside. For it is not a Jew who is one on the outwardly, but he is one who is one inwardly through the circumcision of the heart. Let's read on. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come? Their condemnation is just. Clear as mud, right? (laughs) Let me try to explain what he's saying here. The wickedness of man 
illustrates or contrasts the holiness and the glory of God. It's like a light in the dark. I mean, if you were going to grab a flashlight and you wanted to know how strong the batteries were in that flashlight and you were in a brightly lit room, what are you going to do? You're going to turn the lights out in the room because the light of the flashlight is seen best against the darkness. The darker the dark, the brighter the light. God's holiness and His glory and His perfection are seen in a greater contrast, seen clearer against the backdrop of the wickedness of man. And so Paul is preempting a question that he knows some are going to have about that. And that is, if our wickedness allows God's glory to be seen better, then why punish it? I mean, why remove it? If our sin results in his glory, why not just sin more so that God can then be glorified more? And I love how Paul answers this. He doesn't even try to give them some long explanation so that it will make sense to them. He simply says their condemnation is just. You can ask all the questions you want to to try to justify your sin and blame it on God and say it's not fair, but in the end, his judgment and his condemnation of sin is just. It's right. If God says that justice is served by condemning sin, then it's just. Case closed. It doesn't have to make sense to you. It doesn't have to be fair in order for it to be so. If God says it is, then it's just. The next point is, if God says it is, Guess what? It is. You know, too often we try to make sense of God's ways before we will believe them. We try to make God's ways line up with our ways. And I mean, many people look at some doctrine in, in Scripture, some way that God operates. And even though the Bible clearly states that it, this is the way it is, some will look at that and go, well, that just doesn't seem very fair. That doesn't really make sense to me. I don't really believe God would do that. And so I say, so I'm not going to buy into that. But let me tell you something. God is in no way obligated to make his ways make sense to us. He doesn't owe us a clear explanation for everything that he does. In fact, he even states plainly in Isaiah 55, 8, your ways are not my ways. There are things in the Bible that I've struggled with before. Things that I'll come across and I'll go, whoa, wait a minute. I don't remember being told this. I'm going, that doesn't really line up with what I thought. That doesn't really seem fair. Is God really that way? And I tell you what, there, as we go through Romans, there's going to be some things in here that some of you are going to struggle with too. Some things you're going to go, I've never heard that before. Maybe you already have. But those things that I clearly saw in Scripture but didn't line up with what I had been taught or, or what I you know, couldn't make sense of, I finally just had to submit to the fact that I couldn't refute what was in God's Word. I finally just had to go, God, I don't get this, but... It's clear that this is what your word says, and so I'm just going to submit to it and trust that you will fill in the blanks. And God has every time. 
You know, too often we get hung up trying to make sense of things that are way beyond us. I'm telling you right now, if God were someone or, or something that I could fully understand everything about, y'all are in trouble. <laughs> if we could figure everything out about God, we wouldn't need him. He is so big and so beyond our limited capacity that there will always be things about God where we just have to go, I don't know, but I trust him and I praise him anyway. And if he says something is, then it is. And the reason for that is because he is the ultimate source of all truth. And this goes back to to what Paul says is the ultimate problem with mankind, our failure to honor God and the constant belittling of his name. I mean, who are we to question God's ways or to criticize how he governs? God has the ultimate say in all matters, even if it doesn't make sense to us, even if it doesn't seem, quote, fair or fit our assumptions or line up with what we have been led to believe in the past. Our role is just to submit to what his word says and trust him. And he'll fill in the rest. He usually does. Now, the world will tell you that this is intellectual suicide. So they say, you've got to give up your intellect and your reasoning to believe in God. No, it's called acknowledging that there is something bigger and more powerful than me. There is something way beyond my intellectual capacity, capacity, which, by the way, is minuscule, minuscule compared to him. And so I'm going to submit to that. Now, in this next part we're about to read, Paul is going to just kind of sum up everything he said so far and tie up any loose ends, and he uses Old Testament Scripture to do it. Starting in verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There were seven Old Testament verses that Paul quoted here, six from the Psalms and one from Isaiah. And he sums it all up by saying, there is no one good. In the chapters before this, he has listed who all is not right with God and what doesn't save us. And just in case there is anybody still left who thinks that none of this applies to them, that you're still off the hook somehow, let me just tell you, nobody is good. You know, there's a problem that some people have with God that makes them question the reality of hell. I've heard so many people say so often that they just don't see how God can send good people to hell. You know, there may be somebody who may not believe in Jesus, but they're kind to others. They're good citizens. They don't get into a lot of trouble, and they're, they're fun to be around. 
People like them. I mean, how can anyone justify someone like that spending eternity in hell just because they didn't believe the right thing? How can God send good people to hell? Well, first of all, good according to whose standard? Who's defining what good is here? Is it good according to human standards or good according to God's standard? Obviously, in that scenario, we're using human standard to judge what good is. And I tell you, if God judged everyone based on the human standard and our definition of what's good, that would be an excellent argument. But unfortunately, God doesn't do that. He has one standard that he judges everyone by, and it's his standard. And according to his standard, no one is good. We talked about a couple weeks ago, God doesn't compare us to other people. He doesn't say, well, you're, you're not that good, but at least you're not like this fool over here, so I'm going to let you in. No, God doesn't compare it. You know what? He does compare us to someone, but it's not anybody else. He compares us to him, to his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection. And that is a scary thing. Because God isn't just good. He is absolutely holy and perfect. God's requirement isn't that we be good. His requirement is that we be perfect. He says, be holy as I am holy. And nobody even comes anywhere close to his perfection and his holiness. Isaiah 64, 6 He says, for all have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Even our best actions compared to God's holiness and his perfection is still pure filth. Next point, no one is able to be good enough for God. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This right here is the whole purpose of the old covenant law. The whole purpose of the 10 commandments is to show that we don't and we can't meet God's standard no matter how hard we try, no matter how good our intentions are. We all lie, we all cheat, we're all going to steal at some point, we all put other things before God. I mean, even if we were to keep able to keep nine out of the Ten Commandments, I mean, that's a 90, right? That's an A. Wrong. Because James 1.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in just one part is guilty of breaking the whole thing. And so the law shows us how imperfect we are, that we can't be good enough that we can't save ourselves, if there was some way for us to be saved, it's got to come from outside of us. We need somebody to save us. Galatians 3.24, Paul says, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. When Carol and I were struggling pretty hard at the beginning of our marriage, we had gone to all different counselors, and there was one marriage counselor that really had... uh, an impact more so than the others, really opened our eyes to something. And I remember that first time we met with him in, in his office, and he said, tell me what's going on. And I started, I said, all right, I'll go first. 
said, I'm telling you right now, I'm done. I don't even want to be here. I can't love her the way that she needs to be loved, obviously. I can't be the husband she expects me to be. I can't do this. I'm done. I don't even want to try anymore. I'm done. And Carol pretty much echoed the same thing from her side. The counselor looked at us and he goes, great. I said, what? He said, that's great. Because that is exactly the place that God has been trying to get both of you this whole time since you both said I do. To get you to the place where you realize you are completely incapable of doing any of this without him. He has been trying to point out your need for him. And I went, wow. And that was a huge turning point in our marriage. I'm telling you right now, if you're somebody in here who feels like you're at the end of your rope, let go. Quit trying to white knuckle and hang on. If you feel like you're about burnout out and just trying and spinning your wheels, feel like I can't do it anymore, I'm done. That's exactly where God wants you. So that you will then turn to him and say, I can't do it, Jesus. I need you. And so for the last three chapters of Romans, this is exactly where Paul has taken the reader in this letter. He has shown that everyone stands guilty before God with no hope of saving ourselves. Might as well just stop trying. We come into this world with a death sentence hanging over us with nothing that we can do about it. This is the bad news on the human condition. My favorite part in the whole book of Romans are the next two words that Paul writes. First two words of verse 21, but now. This is how it's always been, but now. But now something has happened. But now God has done something huge. But now where there was none before, there is hope. But now the first two words are the greatest announcement ever given to man. You've heard the bad news for the last five weeks. But now here comes the good news. Verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. The Greek word that Paul used for manifested there means to make visible or known what has been hidden or unknown. The word he used for the righteousness of God is the Greek word dikaiosune, which means the state of him who is as he ought to be, the condition acceptable to God. The condition acceptable to to God. For the last three and a half chapters of this letter, Paul has been describing the condition that is not acceptable to God. And so the first part of verse 21 is Paul is essentially saying this the condition acceptable to God has been made visible. What's he talking about? Jesus. If you don't know the answer, just say Jesus. It's usually going to be right. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus is God's standard. He is the only condition that God accepts. It's not how well you obey the law. It's not the race or the family that you are born into. It's not how much knowledge you have of the right answers. It's Jesus. Ever since the fall of Adam, mankind has been searching for the solutions to all of our problems. But now, the solution has been revealed in Jesus. Next week, we're going to look at the ramifications of what this really means for us. From here on out, we're going to begin to wade into the depths of this incredible news. Let's pray. God, I thank you that in the midst of the mess of life that we encounter, the brokenness of this world that is impossible for us, for us to avoid, God, in the middle of the confusion and the missing answers and searching that we always try to do, God, in the middle of that, there is a but now. There is an answer. That there is hope where there used to not be before, but now there is. And I pray for those right now, God, who those in here may feel like they are at the end of their rope. And may in that place saying, God, I can't do this anymore. Lord, would you show them now by your Holy Spirit that that's exactly where you've been trying to get them, God. So that they will just turn away from their own effort and striving And submit completely to you. Lord, I pray for those who have been hearing this for the last few weeks but are still struggling with whether or not you really are the only answer, the only way to be made right. God, would you show them now that there is no escaping any other way but then through Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would just... I just cause a spirit and an attitude of repentance to rise up in this church body. To turn from everything that we have been leaning on and relying on and put our confidence in. Turning away from that, God, and put our confidence in our relying completely in you. And what you have done, King Jesus. How you have changed everything. Lord, help us to let go of the past and hang on to what you have for us now. Holy Spirit, would you come and just move within our hearts, do the surgery that you desire to do. Lord, let your will be done in the remainder of this time together. Change somebody for your glory today, God. In Jesus' name, amen.